Well, there you, well, there you are. <laughs> Look at all you people. Clap for yourselves. You're all here. It's fabulous. I, I just have to tell you, this is set up for a vacation Bible school here. You know, I've had the privilege of speaking all over the world, lots of places. I've spoken in jungles and on mountaintops. I've spoken on ships. I've spoken on Capitol Hill. But I've never had the chance to speak in the um, cockpit of Star Cruiser 2050. <laughs> and uh, I, know, I know that Carrie introduced me as Dick Foth, but in my heart, I'm Captain Kirk. So just <laughs> so you know where we're going today, there's where we are. So, we're having Songfest Summer. You say, what are you talking about? Well, we're in the series on the Psalms. There are 150 songs right in the middle of this book, about half of them written by a fellow named David. And uh, so the, the thesis or the theme behind it is to speak to the character of God from the Psalms. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 103, and I'll get to that in just a few moments. Psalm 103 is one of the great praise songs that you'll find in all of Scripture. But first, I want to introduce the morning this way, okay? I'm going to say a word, and I'd like you just to think about the, visualize the word. Think about it, and um, I'm going to ask you to do that for 15 seconds, and I'm going to be like Mr. Rogers, and I'm going to keep time, okay? So when I say this word... I'd like you to just, um, I, I tapped this fancy watch here, and it gave me the whole calendar when I just did that. Okay, here's the word. Father. Okay. If I could take what was in your brain and put it on the screens, what I would see is a range. I would see a range of, at the far end over here, there would be tears of joy. And if that father has gone on, tears of loss and great, solid, good feelings. On this end, there would be tears as well, which would, might be tears of anger or frustration or hate or any kinds of things, because this wasn't good over here. And everything in between. Every, all kinds of feelings in between. Or there may be no response at all. It's a blank screen. Didn't know my dad, never saw my dad, or there was a dad, but he was gone, that sort of thing. So th this is Father's Day weekend, okay? And uh, we'll celebrate fathers in general and all of that, but this is just for you who are dads, this is not a message to you this morning. Th this is not five ways to be a better dad, so you can quit sucking air through your teeth and just relax. It's going to be all right, okay? It's not even a story or a, a, a message about fathers. What this is, is a message about a father, about the father here, who is the absolute best and what that looks like. <clears throat> Even if we struggled with a dad, we have an intrinsic understanding, I think, as human beings, of what you'd like a dad to be like. I think it's something planted in our hearts by God. And so, in you know, all of us, we all want to be loved, 
cherished, protected, and valued. And ideally, an earthly father should do those things, I'm thinking. But the challenge is sometimes we dads don't get it. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fall far short. And so what it creates is an imperfect lens of how to see a heavenly father. Because I'm, I don't even want to hear the word father because it, it connected with God because it conjures up all this other stuff. I believe that approach is a non-starter. I believe that the Spirit of God would like, for those of us who have struggled with some stuff, would like to reboot in us an understanding of what Father really means and what it really looks like. So that's where we're going. And those of you who have heard me speak over the last 13 years here, uh, you've, you've heard me talk about my mom a number of times. My mom was a musician. She was... She had gone through some stuff in her life. We, we would call her back in the day a tough cookie. She had grit. She had humor. All of that thing. Never lost her song all of her 100 years. She died at four weeks past 100 years a number of years ago. But this morning, I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to introduce you to my dad. My dad's name was Oliver. He was born in 1913 in a town in, in the Central Valley of California called Dinuba. Is there anybody here who might know that place? Dino oh, my. You people. Then you know about grapes and raisins and all that stuff. My grandfather worked in a raisin packing plant all of his adult life in Selma, California, which is near Dinuba, town of about 3,000 when my dad was born there. And um, the month before he was born in April of 1913, Woodrow Wilson was born was uh, put in, inaugurated as president of the United States. And in December of that year, Henry Ford created the first moving assembly line, which would allow him to build a Model T in not 12 hours, but in two hours and 40 minutes. You say, like, does that fact have anything to do with your message? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing to do with it. I just like the fact that it happened the year my dad was born, so I threw it in there. That's what happens, okay? So my dad brought up all of his years in Dinuba, California, and when he was 16 in high school, he dropped out. And he fibbed about his age. Fib might be too slight a word, but he fibbed about his age, somehow got his dad to sign the papers, and joined the Navy in 1929. And in a bottom drawer of a chest of drawers at our house, we have this. This is my dad's sailor outfit from 1929. You lace it up in the back. This is the front. Look at those bell bottoms. You guys from the 70s, you're lusting after these bell bottoms, right? And this is the, this is the top, the blouse as they called it, from 1929. And you saw that he was very slim. I could probably get my leg in the place his waist goes there. And uh, six foot three, this gangly guy joined the Navy, and they, like they didn't catch him for 18 months, apparently, because he wasn't supposed to be in the Navy, too young. And so they escorted him out and said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And so there you go. And then at age 19, back in that little town, he went to a service, what they call a revival meeting, in a little church, and gave his life to Jesus. And three years later, he ended up in what they called, he graduated high school, 
and I ended up in what they called a Bible Institute, a, a Bible training college for ministers in Pasadena, California. There he met a girl named Gwen Boyd and married her in 1935. They then pastored in Northern California for 10 years, and then in 1944, they went to a conference where a single lady missionary from India stood up and said, I want a man for India. And my parents responded to that, and so in the fall of 1945, at the end of World War II, the Germans had surrendered in May, Japanese had surrendered in August, in one of the first ships out of New York Harbor for Europe, uh, we sailed. And this is our family on our way to India, and I just have to say I was very cute. I just have to say, I, I mean, like I had hair and everything in that picture, you know. And uh, off we sailed for several years. We were in India. My folks are missionaries there, and this is my folks in their Indian garb, if you will. And uh, came back. And my, my father was a missionary and pastored from 35 to 1963. Summer of 1963, Ruth and I married in that summer and went off to grad school at a place called Wheaton College from California. Went to Wheaton College in Illinois. And six months later, got a letter from my father saying he was leaving my mother after 29 years of marriage. And you say, well, now, didn't you say he was a missionary and a pastor? That's not supposed to work like that. And we've said this dozens of times from this pulpit podium, and it's this. Life is what happens when you expected something else. And we get to deal. That's how it is. And for me, I had seen it coming because there were some rumblings along the way. I'd seen it coming, but it was confusing to me. And my identity was connected with my dad so much that I thought maybe, I thought maybe it was hereditary. That's, that's what I thought, and Ruth and I will celebrate our 58th anniversary next month, so, so far, so good. And so I just, you know, just that thought. But, but here, it was confusion for me. He went off and worked with Salvation Army in San Francisco for a couple of decades, but in, in his spirit, he's kind of wandered for a long time, but toward the end of his years, he came back from my perspective and uh, passed away at the age of 93 in 2006. But for me as his son, it was a mixed bag. A lot of us have mixed bag experience. We just do. That's how it works. And um, what I desperately wanted to do in those years was to remember the good. Because if you fixate on the bad, it'll just take you out. It just will. And I wanted to remember the good. So I, you know, I have these images in my mind, this photo album in my head that I remember of my, of my dad and, and playing catch in the street on Congress Avenue in East Oakland, California, playing baseball. And, uh, or going to Yosemite Valley National Park, Yosemite National Park, and at age 16, hiking Half Dome with my father, you stand on top of this magnificent mountain sliced into by a glacier, I'm, they say, and, I, and I'm looking over the and it was just a great moment. And then there was the time when, when I had the lead in the term play my senior year at Fremont High School in Oakland, California, and um, I'd asked my dad, to come because I, you know, it's cool. You've done all this work, and he he said he thought he was busy, didn't think he could, and it ended up that he showed up both nights. And I can remember as the curtain came down, and then the curtain came up, and the cast all bowed, and then the curtain came down, and it came up, and the cast all bowed. It had two or three of those things, and then everybody's hugging everybody, and there was my dad, on the stage with me, and that picture is locked in my mind. So. 
Two years after my dad left my mom, I became a dad. And um, I love in intros, you know, that it's very kind when people introduce you wherever you speak. But my favorite intro is this. Husband of Ruth, father of four. That's my favorite intro, right? So we have these four kids, and I remember exactly where and when they were born. I do. And uh, that first time, you know, some of you who are older, you get this. Back in the day, you're the dad, you're the bad guy out in the hall. They don't let you into the labor. You don't, they, they don't let you in, right? By the time we got to the fourth child, they make sure you come in, and you're holding shoulders and doing the, that, that whole business. How many get that? How many of you older dudes here get that? You understand? Okay. So, but what I remember was the feeling, the joy of being a father, the sense of responsibility that wasn't bad, or the sense of wanting to protect and provide. And I discovered a big truth about being a dad. One is that becoming a dad, that's easy. Being a dad, that's like real work, okay? So the question of the day is this. What's my heavenly father like? What's he like? And scripture is full of, what's he, of what he's like. And um, Scripture is saturated with God the Father. If you're taking notes, this is point one. Scripture is saturated with God the Father. Interestingly, the Old Testament doesn't have a lot of references with that title. It talks about the Father, but doesn't have that title very much. But you get to the New Testament when the Son, Jesus, comes. The New Testament has scores and scores, perhaps hundreds of references to God the Father. And in the Psalms, you have this prolific songwriter. He's a shepherd boy. He's a poet. He's a songwriter, plays guitar. Well, he plays harp. And uh, he's a warrior. He ends up being king. His name is David. And in Psalm 103, many scholars consider this to be the greatest praise song out of the whole collection of Psalms. This is how it reads. And I'm going to read the first part, and then I'm going to ask you to join me in reading out loud in the, in the middle. So here's the first part. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are they? Well, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desire with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He'll not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. I love this part. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I love that part. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I would say that's good news, all right? Then right in the middle, it's like he's saying, um, let, let me say this another way. And this is how he says it. Read it with me out loud, will you? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. 
and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. I got to tell you, I, I have to confess this, that when I think of Father, compassion is not like the first word that comes to my mind. I just I have to say that. I know it sh probably should, compared, you know, considering this. But in this psalm and in this understanding, compassion apparently is the trigger for all those other things we just read or the umbrella for the forgiver, healer, protector, all of that. There's another psalm, Psalm 68, 5, that reads like this. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. There's that big idea again. Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Now we need to understand that back in ancient times, the idea of father is a little different than it is now. The structure of it's a bit different. Back in the day, the father ruled as head of the household. Some of you grew up in that context, but I mean, back here is a big deal. He, he was the person to whom most respect is due and had absolute authority over his family. His word was the final star. We're not negotiating, all that kind of stuff. But he also guarded, supported, and helped other members. So this is, this is Father, who's the alpha male, written all in caps, all right? One, one thing we know about fathers is the, the idea of Father projects strength. It projects strength. The protector, the one who handles things, the one who's bigger than I. If I'm a two-year-old, even if my dad is 5'3", he's still more than twice as, he's a giant, right? And literally a father is looked up to, physically looked up to. Sometimes when we sing, and it happened today, and it happened last night, sometimes when we sing, some of us raise our hands like this in, in praise. And biblically it says to raise your hands to in, without anger, without doubt, but it's something that sometimes is instinctive. We'll hear a line or a truth in a song and it touches a chord in us and we want to respond and that's what happens. And oftentimes when people would ask me, why do people do that? Well, I say, well, it's an act of surrender. It's an act of homage. But I think there's something deeper for me than that and it's this. When our kids were small, little guys, I'd come into the house once in a while and and one of them, or a couple of them, would run up on these stubby little legs, and they'd do this. Up, Daddy. They'd say, how many know that? They'd go, up, Daddy, and you grab them, and you hoist them up. And, and it's a whole different perspective when you're small, and all of a sudden you're in your father's arms. This, this idea of being caught up, if you will, and taken to a different place, a different view, is a powerful thought and powerful ideas. So, so when I do this, for me, it's up, Daddy. It's, it's that view. And, and kids, little kids think dads, you know, can do most anything, I think. I don't know that it's logical, but it, they think that. So I'm in my tennis phase when I'm young. I had my running phase and my taekwondo. No, I never did that. But a <laughs> tennis phase. And I came into the house one day. We had this split-level house, seven steps up, seven steps down. Some of you had those kind of houses, maybe have one now. And 
And uh, I put my tennis racket down in the corner. I'm sweating like a stuck pig. I mean, you know, and, and Jenny, who's now in her early 50s and the mother of two, she's three, and she's standing at the top of those seven stairs. And as I turn this way, I hear a voice say, catch me, Daddy. And I whirl around, and she has launched. She is in the air. And she hits me in the chest, and I grab her. And I said, Jenny, don't do that. Daddy could drop you. And she put her face right up against my sweaty face and whispered in my ear, oh, no, you're my daddy. And I'm going, well, I guess. And I, there's something about the protection of a dad that is there. And you hear this over and over and over again here about our heavenly father. So what if I really see, saw God, my father, that way? What if I saw him that way? Strong tower, refuge, all those things that we're hearing about this, this uh, summer from the Psalms. You know, sometimes an earthly father gets so upset, you know, back in the day, not so much today, they'd say, you know, do that again, I'm giving you the back of my hand. You know, one of those. And here's a heavenly father who comes along and says, I'd like to give you the palm of my hand. Why don't you come and stand right there and let me hold you in the palm of my hand so you will always know what secure feels like. That's the Heavenly Father. Point three, if you're taking notes, is fatherless carries a deep sense of loss. Deep sense of loss. In ancient days, oftentimes fathers didn't, men didn't live very long. I mean, it's still true that we have shorter lifespan than women on average, but back in the day, sometimes a young man could die by the age of 30 just because of the the uh, hard times and all of that. So there were lots of widows in the land in those days. But fatherless can come by death or it can come by abandonment or hurt. And some of us know that our fathers have hurt us. I mean, I would even use the, a strong word like a father has sinned against a child in some way by abuse of a variety of kinds. But that being the possibility, that being the case, why would Jesus use the father-son idea or teach it so strongly in the Gospels? Seems like, as, as one writer said, seems like that's risky because then that allows the possibility that we would see God the Father through that imperfect model. So why would he do that? A couple of thoughts. The father-son metaphor is the truth. It's the best descriptor, because it's true, of Jesus and the Father. That's one thing. Second thing is, I think Jesus wants to bring wholeness to wounded hearts, to show us a different picture. So, to make the point in the Gospels, I don't know if it's to make the point, but it does make the point, all of Jesus' uh, uh, life in, in the Gospels, in, the, in just these few uh, chapters, if you will. It isn't very much. You can read through it pretty quick, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Over and over again, you have Jesus responding to the Father. Um, here is Jesus. He's raised till he's 30 years old in, the, in a small town up in the Galilee, hill, Galilee hill, hill country. And the scripture says a little podunk town. Apparently, people look down on it. Those people up there, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, that little town? But he's brought up there by a stepfather. See, Joseph is a stepfather because you have that whole virgin birth thing with Jesus, right? And you, you can hear teenagers in town saying, hey, Jesus, 
tells that story about who your dad is. Nobody believes that story your mom tells. And so, you know, they got that thing going. So here he is, 30 years. He's a carpenter, and he goes public. And when he goes public, one of the first things that happens for the next three years of his mission is that he's baptized by John the Baptist. Listen to how it reads in Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Clearly, this is not a performance model. This is not a father saying to son, Good game, son. Way to go. That thing I asked you, mow the lawn, good job. It's not that. Jesus hasn't done any of the big stuff yet. He hasn't healed eyes. He hasn't lengthened arms. He hasn't forgiven sin. hasn't raised people from the... hasn't done any of that. And his father is saying, I love you. Well pleased with you. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Who doesn't want the approval of a good father? I mean, I can't speak for women. I can't even speak for all men, but I can speak for me. And having the approval of a father is a huge deal as a boy growing up. So the Gospels are full of those moments. And Jesus is full of stories. So when he wants to describe to a pretty critical audience what the kingdom of God is like, the place he came from or the relationship he has with the father, he tells a story about a father and two boys. You can go to Luke 15, and there are three stories in that little chapter. One is about a lost coin, one is about a lost sheep, and the third is about a lost boy. And many of you know the story. We, we, we call it the story of the prodigal son. Interesting title. Prodigal is a word we don't use very much anymore. Comes from the root prodigious, which means lavish. Here's a kid, a young boy, or a younger son of the two, who goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, which in the culture of the day would essentially mean, I wish you were dead. So it shamed the father, shamed the community. You just don't do that. And he took the monies and went and blew it all. He was a prodigious spender. Spend it on wine, women, and song, whatever. It ends up in a far country, Jewish kid, slopping hogs, worst place you can be. And he came to himself in a great famine, and he remembered his father's house, and he goes home. It's a wonderful story, probably the best short story ever written. It's got, it's got intrigue, it's got envy, it's got all the place, all the pieces to it. And he comes home, and when he comes home, the, his older brother is jealous. His older brother is as arrogant as he is. He doesn't get it. And he's upset that his younger brother's home because the consequence for what he did in that culture at that time is the father should kill him. And if he doesn't, the community would because the whole community was shamed. And so here goes the father. It says that he saw his boy coming from a long way off and he starts this old man. He starts to walk and then he sees who it is and he starts to run. He's picking him up and he's laying him down and he's running for this boy. And he grabs the boy and kisses him. And the boy says, I just want to be a slave. And it's, I can see his father putting his hand on his mouth saying, shush. You've already had your say. Let me have my say. And this is what I say. You're not a slave. You're my son. Bring him the sandals to show he's not a slave. Give him the signet ring to show he's got access to all my wealth. Bring him the robe. We are going to have a party. The community wanted to kill him, and the father threw a killer party. That's what happened. 
you say, boy, that's some story about two boys. It's not a story about two boys. It's a story about a father who waits. One kid wandered off in his head. The other kid wandered off physically. And the father waits. The gracious father waits. And in my own life, I've wandered off and I have a father, a heavenly father, who waits. When Jesus wants to describe his mission, he puts it in father terms. John 16, 28. I came from the father, entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the father. <clears throat> He's saying this to his disciples the night before the crucifixion. When Ruth and I went to Washington, D.C. in 1993 to work with folks in places of leadership and I'm walking across Capitol Hill, and I'm a kid from East Oakland. You've heard me say this a hundred times. I'm a kid from East Oakland. I'm not a Yaley. I'm not a Harvard guy. Wasn't raised with money, not a blue blood, any of those uh, metrics by which people often are measured out there. And um, I'm saying, how do I t say this, what Jesus said, in non-churchy language? I can't say it for Jesus, but I, I mean, how do I say that? And I came up with this thought, some of you have heard me say it, about place. I felt like the Lord <clears throat> framed it this way for me. He said, Foth, here's the deal. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then we'll go to my place. Let me say that again. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then we'll go to my place. When he's talking to his disciples, talking to the Father again the night before he is crucified, he's concerned for them, and this is what he says to his Father. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So his thing was to come to my place and take my place, and this, in talking to his Father, this captures that. And finally, there's that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're, what, <clears throat> 18 hours from his death? I see him curled up in a fetal position in the garden. The disciples who came to pray with him, they're taking a nap. But he's there curled up in a fetal position. It says that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And this is what he says to his father. And he uses an Aramaic word that's a diminutive. It's an affectionate word, Abba. And Abba very simply means Papa, Daddy. Oh no, you won't drop me. You're my Daddy. He says, Papa, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. That's his feeling statement. And then he gives the knowledge statement. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I want, but what you want. And you want the cross to happen so that Foth gets in. You want the cross to happen, the cross has to happen so that we all sit in Fort Collins, Colorado, and around the world, if you will, believing in this Jesus. So Jesus wants us to know his Father, he, who will do us no harm. He, he wants us to feel his embrace, to feel his love, a Father who will not let us go. So this Father's Day weekend, let's go there, all of us. Okay, You know my lead question. Those of you who have heard me talk very much at all know that I have a lead question. And the lead question I ask almost anybody, anywhere, donut shop, on the street, whatever, is this. So where's home for you originally? 
Where were you born and brought up? That's where I start. I don't say, what do you do? I found that's a non-starter, especially if you've just lost your position, you know, or as we say in D.C., you're in transition. That's, a, that, that's not a good place to start, okay? <laughs> where were you born and brought up? We need to understand this. We don't just have an earthly birthplace. You were not just born in Ottumwa, Iowa, or Pascagoula, Mississippi, or Eaton, Colorado, or in San Jose, California, or in Marblehead, Massachusetts, or in Miami, Florida. That is a birthplace, but you have a heavenly birthplace because you were in the Father's heart. And he has carried you in his heart for all this time. Final point, almost done. No earthly father, no earthly father compares to our heavenly father. You say, well, I get that because my dad wasn't great and I didn't, I don't think I even knew him very much, da, 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 da. Oh, I'm not talking about just the ones that weren't great. I'm talking about the very best ones. I'm talking, you say, I had the greatest dad in the world. I wouldn't trade him for five million bucks. That father, as good as he is, doesn't come close to this father. Because that father goes away like that. My father at 93, like that. My mother at 100. And me somewhere down the road, hopefully not tomorrow afternoon, like that, okay? <laughs> this father goes on forever. That father has all strength and authority, all the protection, all the provision, all the healing, all the forgiveness. What a parent he is. You know, some of you are parents here, and I know why you love your kids. I know why you do. It's because they're beautiful. Well, mostly. <laughs> I know why you love them, because they're intelligent. Because <laughs> they got an A their sophomore year in high school. That, that, that's why you love them, right? No, why you love them is because they're reasonable. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I've got it. I know why you love You love them because they always were obedient. <laughs> they did everything, just took e even a suggestion became a direction and they just, no, I don't think so. There's one reason we love our children. And it's because they're ours. That's it, right? Through all the stuff, they're still ours. Even at this moment, some of our children, maybe adult children, they're out there, they're wandering. You don't even, may perhaps know where they are, but they're still yours. And yet we understand they're on loan. They're really his, but they're on loan, okay? And my question is, where do we get that? It's like it's in our DNA. I believe it is in our DNA. It's the heavenly, compassionate father DNA. It's the father to the fatherless DNA. It's get out of my way. I'm going to find my kids and go bless them DNA. That's what it is. If you feel fatherless this day, I want you to hear him say this, okay? If you feel fatherless this day, I want you to hear him say this. That's what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to hear this day. Not just folks talking. 
I believe that's what he wants us to hear. So how about we reboot by responding to this truth. Hear it from Psalm 103 one more time. The compassionate Father forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desire for good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's the Father we're responding to, responding to that Father. So how do we begin afresh? How about this? I don't write prayers, okay? Sometimes back in D.C. when you're speaking to various things or you're invocating or whatever they call it, they make you write the prayer because they don't want you to say bad stuff, right? <laughs> but I wrote this prayer for any of you that wish to pray it, and I'm going to pray it out loud. And if in your heart you identify with it, I want you to pray it in your heart and your mind for a reboot, okay? Heavenly Father, I can't change one minute of my past, my earthly existence, but I can claim my birthright in you. I choose from this moment, from this moment on, to see you as my rightful Father through Jesus Christ. I choose this day to follow your ways. I choose this day to listen for your voice of approval. Amen. Let me close. One of my favorite aspects of God the Father, and there are a bunch, but this is like one of the top ones, is I love it that he cheers us on. I have a favorite, I mean, the whole Bible's full of cheering on, right? I have a favorite dad story. It's not my dad. And some of you have heard it before, but I'm, I just like it, so I keep telling it. I was a grad student at Wheaton Grad School and I was asked to help with a memorial service led by a young pastor in that town in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, he told this story about his father. His father was a businessman. His father was very conservative. And back in the day, he said, I don't think I can ever remember my dad without a tie on. And he wore a navy blue suit and a regimental tie, one of those striped ties. That's how I remember seeing him. And he said, uh, my dad was very busy. And so even though I played baseball in high school, he never came to any of my games. And we were playing for the league championship my senior year. And I went to my dad and I asked him to come and he was non-committal. But that May day when we walked out to play that championship game, I looked up and the stands were filled with people in spring and summer attire, the whites and the pastels and the light colors. And I was stunned because there in the middle of the stands was my father sitting in his navy blue suit and his regimental tie and I loved it and he said we played our hearts out and we were playing a tough team and we got to the bottom of the ninth inning the last chance and we were up to bat and they were ahead four runs to one we got the bases loaded there were two outs and I was up to bat if I could get a home run we could win this sucker and he said I stepped into the batter's box and did what you do as a baseball player, got ready, the guy put one right down the pipe and I swung strike one. He said, I stepped out and did that other thing. I knocked the dirt out of my cleats and spit on my hands and do, you know, whatever. And you just, you know, another one right down the pipe, strike two. I stepped out three more times, stepped back in, three balls. It was a full count. When I stepped into the batter's box, the crowd was going nuts. And he said, I pounded the, the bat on the plate and under my breath, 
I said, God, if you are there, this is the time. <laughs> and he said, the pitcher wound up and put one right down the pipe, and I nailed it to center field. And I raced for first, and as I rounded first, the first guy scored. And I'm coming into second, and the ball comes on the, off the center field fence. And as I come around, the second guy scores, and the guy in the outfield picks it up to throw to the infield. And I'm going as fast as I can, and the crowd is screaming. And all of a sudden, above all the other voices, I hear my father shouting, It's okay, son! You're going to make it. Come on home. And he said, I raced around third and slid in under the tag at home plate, and we won the game, and I didn't care. All I could hear was my dad shouting at the top of his lungs, it's okay, son, you're going to make it. Come on home. And I believe on this day in June 2021 in Fort Collins, Colorado, and around the world, the God of all creation, our Heavenly Father, is standing on the edge of the nebulae and the galaxies and shouting, it's okay, kids, you're going to make it. Come on home. You are mine. Fatherless? Never. Heavenly Father? Always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your truth, your son Jesus who came to bring us into the family to help us know and resonate with and claim the fact that we have a birthright beyond this planet. Thank you for the restoration, for healing for those even in this time that we've been together. Your Holy Spirit chasing away fear and anger and bringing peace and confidence in a heavenly love. We trust you going forward and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray.